Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And Jen, I just have to say to you that spring is kind of here in New York. It's super exciting. I know it's well, it's fully here in Los Angeles, which is super. Actually, I'm really enjoying Los Angeles for the first time in I will be here by the time this comes out, actually 10 years. I've been in Los Angeles for 10 years and um, I'm finally starting to love it. And I can't believe it. Tell me about spring in New York, which is a much better and more exciting season. Well, I mean, it's going to still, you know, I check the weather pretty obsessively and I see that it's going to be in the 30s for a couple of days later on in the week. But like the days are warming up to like, you know, the 50s or 60s. And I took the dog for a long walk in Prospect Park yesterday and nothing was blooming yet, but everything has buds on it. And there was one tree actually that was blooming that looked like a cherry blossom, but I didn't know if it was a cherry blossom. But it made me so happy. And I know it could still snow. I know it snows in April, but I just like, I, I, something about this winter and I'm sure COVID has something to do with it just felt endless. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it changes you, changes everything, your mood, your physiology, like everything. When you can go outside, when you can like breathe the air and it doesn't hurt, like when it is just a, when the weather is showing up for you, it's such a banal thing to talk about, but it's also, it changes everything, changes everything. It changes everything. And it would, it may be a banal thing to talk about, but people wouldn't sit in front of those like light things, light therapy boxes, if weather didn't make a huge difference. I mean, weather is actually really fucking interesting and its impact on all of our moods is significant. Totally. Totally. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, I am, I am in the last three weeks of writing my book. 
and amazing. And I cannot fucking believe it. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. I'm so excited to be completing a completing a giant project. In under a year. In under a year. You know what? The thing is, you could do it. It's just you're you're just gonna have to commit to it. I mean, and that's our guest today that we have on later today, which we didn't say, which we're gonna have, which you're gonna hear in a second, is Megan Steelstra, who is one of, I think, the best writing teachers around, uh, creative nonfiction writing teachers. And she talks a lot about process and not treating your work in a way that is precious, right? Mm -hmm. Just if you're going to do it, just commit to doing it. And I, I found that has been the case for me. And I, it's, I can already tell that even though I'm going to have to go through the terror of, oh my God, people are going to read this and feedback and critique and blah, 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 blah. And then ultimately the whole world's going to see this incredibly personal thing that I've done, but I can already feel all of those good accomplishment feelings, which you, you don't get if you don't do it. You know? No. And that's like heroin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like a really nice and, you know, if you're lucky, addictive feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is that we, we did a call out for, uh, listener questions and, um, we're going to be having a whole episode with listener questions next week. So thank you so much for sending those in. Keep sending them. And, um, I don't know what else, what else are you doing? <laughs> I don't know what else I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking out the window at the pretty spring sky. I, oh, I'm going to Florida in a couple weeks. Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting and weird. <laughs> I'm going to Florida. I'm not going to an especially glamorous part of Florida. And I'm going with two busloads of teenagers. I mean, if you don't at some point write about, <laughs> write about your life on tour with teens, <laughs> no, it the is world's really going to miss out, I have to say. It is kind of amazing. They're really, it is deeply amusing to be around those kids. You know, and they, the confidence they have is just life. It's a different, it's a different thing. It's a different, they're different than we were these generations after us. There is, there is a girl who I'm very fond of who showed up on the first day of the last tour with a t-shirt on that said, beautiful women don't intimidate me, but I sure wish they'd try. (laughs) Uh, you know, oh, which, man. which clearly wasn't the message that whoever thought of that t-shirt had in mind but it was so genius <laughs> but they just amaze me they're so confident and they've, they've got these you know they don't know who they are any more than we did at that age but they've got more of a like more of a handle on it than i think we did no and it goes into that thing where i just hope that always in my life i have part of my life surrounded by young people I think it's so important for your perspective on the world, for understanding your place in the world, for sort of right-sizing things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just think being around young people and their energy, even if they treat you like you're embarrassing trash, is still really, <laughs> still really great. No, it is. Even if, like, I told this story already on the podcast, but when I told one of the kids that he looked cool and he said i look cool and he said oh yeah you look comfortable totally totally like, oh well, yeah we're, we're ancient we're ancient and they don't want to really hang out with us but i do i do find them very amusing i've never been more embarrassing in my life my my child is almost 12 i've never never thought of myself as so embarrassing but god damn i'm apparently very very embarrassing <laughs> like, 
You should never be out in public with me because all I do is embarrass. I mean, it's just, ah, oh, mom, ah, oh, mom. Like, oh, but you remember what that feels like. I remember what that feels like. Totally. Like looking at my mom and going, don't wear that. Don't wear that. Totally. Totally. Or even like, you know, I mean, I hate to be a nag, but I'm a nag. I'm like, pull up your pants. I could see your butt, you know? And like, it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, that person who's across the street heard you. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I get I guess if you get through parenting an adolescent with your ego intact, you've got a pretty healthy ego. I had to say the other day, I was just like, look, I expect you to hate me. <laughs> like, it's okay to hate me. I this is part of you becoming a person. Don't feel guilty about it. Find me embarrassing all you want. I can handle it because I can. I mean, imagine if I couldn't. <laughs> like, <laughs> that imagine. would be bad. Imagine if you started crying every time. Exactly. Imagine if I was like, do you really think I'm embarrassing? Who gives a shit? <laughs> like, I am kind of embarrassing at this point. I mean, almost intentionally because it's so fun to have somebody just yelling you're embarrassing <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you want to see how embarrassing I can be? All right. Challenge yeah, accepted. this up a little. Exactly. Exactly. That's um, hilarious. All right. So we have a very long and in-depth conversation with Megan Stilstra. I think we should get to it. Yeah, let's do it. Our guest today is Megan Stilstra. Megan is the author of three highly acclaimed essay collections, Everyone Remain Calm, Once I Was Cool, and The Wrong Way to Save Your Life, which was the 2017 nonfiction book of the year from the Chicago Review of Books. Her work has appeared in the Best American Essays, The New York Times, The Believer, Poets and Writers, Tin House, Long Reads, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. A longtime company member with Second Story, she has told stories for National Public Radio, Radio National Australia, and the Museum of Contemporary Art. She's also a beloved creative writing teacher, a member of the nonfiction faculty at Northwestern University, and teaches writing courses online with Catapult and Story Studio. Megan is also a person I admire a lot. Welcome, Megan. Hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. So I'm just going to just tell everybody how I know you and how excited I am to be here. Um, I, When I was in Iceland in the fall, I was reading your book, and we have a mutual friend, and I texted the friend, here I am in Iceland reading this book. And the friend said, and I said, I'm having a really fucking hard time. And she said, you should actually talk to Megan and then put us in contact. And you basically saved my life and made me write the book that I'm writing in like a five text exchange. So it's pure I can selfish on my part. I just want to read the book. I want to read your stuff. <laughs> so you have to hurt, you have to finish it. You have to finish it for me so that I can um, have all of my needs met. <laughs> so I consider you a magical person and, and that that's, that's it. So you cannot do anything to change that opinion of, uh, of that I have. Um, anyway, you, what you're here to talk about is many other things. Um, you had an unusual pandemic experience. I did. I did, you know, I, I, well, first of all, I think we all have, I don't know what a usual pandemic experience would, would be for, for any of us at, at this point. And, you know, I, I work primarily with memoirists. So, you know, all the, the stuff that was showing up in my inbox day after day after day were just these like completely bananas ways that we were all trying to survive and, and get through. So, so yeah, like I'll, I'll tell you the walk that I walked, but, but just, just knowing that, that all of these different stories were, were showing up all the time in, in, in text for me to read and, and learn from. And 
kind of survive with was was what what got me through. Um, so I. Um, my husband and I, my husband and I split up um, probably the the month before the pandemic hit. So I was wow. quite suddenly a, a single mom, which was a really interesting time to learn how to to learn how to dance that dance. My my kid was twelve at the time; he's fourteen now. And um, and our the lease on our apartment was up, and uh, so we had to move out. And like, how how do you move during a pandemic? Like, I mean, when you're already wiping down all of your groceries with um, with bleach and squirt bottles and and that kind of thing. So. Um, all of my work went remote. All of his school went remote. So we ended up, I, we walked away from all of our stuff, took uh, like four or five boxes into the back of the car. And uh, we went to my mom's in rural Michigan. For you six and your months. son, you're, you mean? My son and I. You yep. say we. Yeah. We, yep. My son and I. And we were there for about six months um, in the forest behind, like by my mom's house, which was a I mean, a, very different for me after the the city. I mean, I, I grew up there, of course, but I, I've been in Chicago for 25 years, so um, I, I have I've, I've adapted. I'm I'm very city at, at this point. Like like for, for example, it doesn't get dark in Michigan, or I'm I'm sorry, it doesn't get like it doesn't get dark in Chicago ever because all the lights are always on. So to be back in Michigan and and everything is dark, like that, just that kind of darkness, like both it, realistically and metaphorically, it was pretty goddamn dark at that point. I'm just assuming I can swear my face off on this. Oh, to a hundred, yes, anything. Please. Yes. Please. It's fantastic. I, could, I did a, like a more public radio show recently and, and just found myself being like bleeped every, every five seconds after <laughs> um, all this podcasting. Anyway, so we were there and then I was lucky enough to get a shearing fellowship through the Black Mountain Institute in Vegas. So then my kid and I jumped in the car and drove to Vegas for six months and we were there. And then uh, my best girlfriend uh, lives in Oakland. So then we wound up for eight months in Oakland and just got back to the Midwest last summer. So it was a pretty wild time to be living out of the back of a car, but also a pretty amazing time to, I, I think, kind of when I was falling off a cliff to, to see all the people who were there to catch me. Um, how do you, how do you maintain a writing practice when you're leading a life like that? You know, I, I think, you know, and everybody's practice is so different, but for me, I, I felt really lucky to have, um, to, I, I pretty much tried to just copy what I did when I had a small kid and, and was super like super postpartum. Like, like how do you keep a writing practice at that point? And, and for me, like between while the kid is napping or picking up the kid from toddler class and on my way to teach a different class. And, you know, I have 15 minutes in the back of the car. I, I rely pretty heavily on the stopwatch on my phone. Like, okay, I have 15 minutes. I'm going to get something fucking done. Cause this is all, this is what you got. And I think making it not precious has been really important to me, right? Just to say, I am, I'm literally going to shit out these, these words over the course of 15 minutes. And then my timer's going off and then I, I, I move on from there. So then when I do wow. get longer chunks of writing time, um, to just sit down and have, you know, a week worth of these 15 minute blocks, like at least it's something to work with. So instead of facing a blank page, which personally I find, I find pretty terrifying. Like I will open up a blank page and I will do all that shit that you're supposed to do. I will make my inspirational playlist and I will pour my bourbon and I will like get myself to a nice quiet place and I will be so Zen. And then I will sit there and I will look at a blank page. And then what do we do next? We check Twitter right? Because that's obviously where the answer is. And if it's not there, then we get up to go make tea. And then when we go make tea, we see that the oven is dirty. So we got to clean the oven and then she gets on the floor and then you got to clean the floor and then you got to clean the whole apartment. And then by the end of all of that, you don't want to read anymore. You want to drink beer and watch Orphan Black. So you don't get anything done. Like, so for me to sit down to a page and there's like, you know, 50 little 
paragraph blocks that I wrote, you know, over the course of, of a week, like in these, in these quick moments. Um, and just to say, okay, what, what did I do here? Like, what is still working? There's this piece I come back to again and again. It's a Kiese Lehman piece. It's called, We're Not Good Enough to Not Practice. Uh, and he talks about how, like, sometimes you have to write 3,000 words to find a single paragraph that glows. And so, like, I, like I, have, I have that graph of his stuck in my head. And I will, like, literally look down my docs, like, okay, what's, what is glowing? Like, what is this technicolor, right? And also, I live in Chicago. And the the literary and performance communities are tangled together in really lovely ways there. So like most of what I put out into print, like I I tried on a, tried out on a mic first. I mean, obviously I wasn't doing that as much during the the pandemic, and right. I was in Chicago, so I didn't have my mics. But the um, but you, I think when I was able to do that, you, you can tell right away what's working. You can tell right away how you're moving people or when you have them or, or when you don't, or like when you're losing somebody, I literally like will be on a microphone holding my pages and I'll make notes in the margins, like go back, you know, go back and look at this or cut this. It didn't, it didn't work. I have a question. Do you, so you're divorced. Divorce is a huge, breaking up a marriage is a huge thing. Lots of grief involved in that. Do you think that the pandemic and sort of the being on the road and having what I'm assuming was a very terrifying journey uh, from one life to another life. Do you think that helped the chaos of that experience helped bridge those two lives? Not that I would recommend this to anybody, you know, like let's go on a road trip and, and, and not have a home and all of this, but do you you think emotionally it helped? Okay. I, I have a thing to say about that. So um, my kid and I, when we were in Vegas, we would like we, you know, I would work during the day. He would go to school. So we we're both on screens all day. And but then we would go to Red Rock in the evening and and hike, which I mean, I mean, that just that kind of natural. You know, I'd never been in the desert before. Like I, I've been in the Midwest my whole life. And it was so beautiful up there. And there was one particular night that we were up there and we were hiking and and, you know, you're up there on the top of the world. It's like that God, that fucking scene, that Titanic scene with Kate Winslet on the boat and her arms are out. Like, I'm like, here I am on top of things. And and I remember saying to my kid, hey, like, do you think this is the bridge? Like us standing up here, like, is this the bridge between our old life and and our our the, the new one that that's coming? And this kid and God, like the fucking kids, like the just their their brains and their hearts. I, I mean, like that I'm still standing because of because of of that boy, but um, he said, "Well, what if this just is the new life? Hmm. Like, well, like th- this isn't a bridge from one to the other. Like, th- what if this is just what we do now? Like, we're on this adventure, and we don't know what's going to happen next. And that, uh, like, I, I think e- even more so than than making it easier or, or whatever, it, it was just kind of th- this this understanding. I I, I think I I had gotten." very comfortable. I knew what I was doing in my job. Like I felt like I, I, this, this is part of the shit we're sold with, with marriage, right? Like, like the, this is the narrative that, that we're given is Shazam, you get married and then here's the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And here are the, you know, like if we see middle-aged women, I'm 46 right now, but like, if we see a woman like me and like, we, we don't see a woman my age in the movies. Like we see me when I'm 20 and we see me when I'm 70 on a, rocking on a porch with my dude and my grandchildren running around. And that is, that is a story, but it is one story. And we need more of that. Like I, we need more of them. We, we just like need huge volumes of stories about women and non-binary folk told by women and non-binary folk. Cause we've been told by dudes for, for so long. And, and thanks dudes. 
like for for whatever. But I, I like we got it now. Like we'll 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 take it back from you. And I that is a story that that I hadn't thought of for myself. Like what if I could walk a life as a mother and and raise a really great, smart, well-adjusted, loving, justice-orientated child, not only while I'm a member of the PTA and you know, like like showing up in this in this more t- traditional life, but we can raise healthy kids um, in all sorts of different different pictures of of our existence. And so, I, I I think about that all the time. Like I'm I'm not trying to get to a next life. I'm not trying to get to a next story right now. That like I'm I'm in it. Like I'm actively showing up to live this life. And and if my kid and I need to jump in the back of a car again, we're going to do it. We survived. And more so than than survived, there, our my, our new apartment is like a it's like a block away from his school, so it's sort of become the place where the the kids want to hang out, which I delight in. So I had a bunch of teenage boys in my in my living room the other day, and I was listening to them, and one of them said, "Hey, Caleb, my kid's name is Caleb. Hey, Caleb, they they, they were talking about something they did last year, and." And they said, well, wait, Caleb, you weren't there. Where were you? And he said, oh, my, my mom and I were living on the road. It was this adventure. Hmm. And, I, y'all, I did not think of it that way. At the, t- at the time, that was survival. How are we not going to get a virus? How are we going to get enough money? Where are we going to live? What are we going to eat? J- just like straight up, um, I, we, we, we were going we to survive. And that's all I was doing. And then now to, to look at it from that child's point of view as an adventure feels pretty profound to me. And I, I would like to adopt that, that viewpoint. I would like to be able to think of it that way. Were you, I would imagine that was pretty scary to have that happen, to have your marriage blow apart right before COVID and find yourself, you know, writing a script that you'd never written before. How did you overcome the fear and how did you keep your son from seeing if you were scared? Yeah, I don't think I overcame it. I, this is the thing. I, the, my my last book was about fear. I've spent a lot of time thinking about fear. I I don't think I've I am scared all the time, all all of the time. For for me, just being able to name it, as opposed to and and accept it, and it is here. And also, there's all sorts of other things that are here: excitement, and joy, and like white hot rage, and also exhaustion. I'm really tired. Um, and and just it's kind of like this big whirlpool of of all of this stuff and. Just what does it mean to keep going? Like, what what does it mean to to keep moving regardless? I I think the the question of what to let my kids see was a was a much bigger one for me. I I mean for for one thing like, um, I mean you you two are the 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 folks listening. Hi, folks listening. Like you you can't physically see me. You can't you can't see what I look like, right? Like Kim and Jen can see me here, but this is the first time Kim and Jen have ever seen me and my body changed a great deal during that time. I, I, I think everybody takes grief into the body in different, and certainly I was grieving. We all were right. Like, like, and we can, we should probably have a conversation about collective grief during the pandemic and how we mourn and, and who have we even been able to do so? Have we been able to even breathe long enough to, to let grief into our lives? Anyway, what I, what you are actively hearing me do right now as I vamp is trying to talk around the fact that in the, the first year I lost a hundred pounds. I wasn't eating. Wow. Don't exactly know, like that. I, and so I want to, I want to give a little bit of a, a heads up here just to talk, you know, talking about like, like content warning shit. Like, like this is how the body manifests itself with grief. And, and that is a thing that, that happened to me. So 
in talking about conversations with my child and fear, I mean, he was there. He saw my body change. We had to, we had to talk about it. Um, and, and just to, to let him know that, that gr- grownups hurt and, and, and the stuff is sad and, and we keep going and we have each other and here are all of the grownups that love me and are here helping me so that helping your mom, like saving your mom is not your job, baby. Right. Like you're, you're here to, you're going to hold my hand and we're going to make it. And will you please take out the recycling? Because like, I'm doing a lot of other shit right now and do your laundry. Cause I ain't raising a man to think that a woman's going to do his laundry anymore. Right. And, but, but we, we, we have to talk to our children. We, we have to have conversations with our, with our children. My, um, my best friend, uh, in Oakland, uh, I, I have this clear memory. My, my kid was maybe seven or eight and we were in her house. Our, our children are, are being raised as cousins and the kids were playing with, um, squirt guns in her living room and there wasn't a ton of room. And so my kids said, Hey, can we go in the front yard and play with squirt guns so we don't get Andia's house all wet? And Gus, Dia's kid, looked at Dia. Gus is black. Dia is black. Dia looked at me. I am white. I looked at my son. My son is white. And it was just this moment of, oh, Gus can't play with squirt guns in the front yard. Yeah. And I and just and I grabbed my son and he and I went for a walk and we talked about Trayvon Martin and we talked about Tamir Rice and and we talked about um the different ways that children of color walk through the world and what like in our, like what responsibilities we have within that and our whiteness. And, and my kid was like, thank you for telling me about this because I can't do better if you don't tell me. And just like, that was just a click moment for me of we've got to talk. We've got to talk to our, we've got to talk to our kids. We've got to talk to our kids in age appropriate ways. Sure. Right. Like we learn the alphabet before we read Mein Kampf. Right. But like, like, so what does it mean to have the building blocks of conversations about responsibility, about consent, about empathy, about kindness, about care, that we can build into some of these bigger conversations. I, I think out of all the things that that I try to think about in, in terms of my politics and my feminism and, and all of that, like I think just the most radical act is dude, I'm I'm raising a white man. So so what is that what does that what does that mean? And how, how do I show up to the table for that? This this reminds me of something I read that somebody once said about your writing, which was that it made them feel, quote, like I'm sitting under a waterfall after crawling through the desert. I'm standing under a waterfall reading your work, but you provide the snorkel to keep breathing. Oh, my God. That's so beautiful. I don't know who said that, but I love you. <laughs> but it seems it seems sort of like that whole idea of just like yes children can be exposed to the kind of ugliness in the of, that exists in the world and the kind of hate that exists in the world and what but at the same time they can anticipate a feeling of safety yeah yeah and i i think that, like not just children but but all of us too like i remember having this moment as a as a teacher and at, at the time i was working primarily with undergraduates right so like 18 to 22 year olds and now i work prim- primarily with adults right so, so it's a it's a jump for me but just this moments of of like 18 19 year olds coming to my table and many of them grew up like i did in very 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 small sheltered towns and maybe don't have a wider understanding of the world and so hello here is your library card and here is our conversation here in this college class and for me it's, with memoir and personal essay like here are people's lived experience that that can crack open this conversation and our understanding of something wider than ourselves. Like I, I engage with, with personal narrative as a 
contribution to a bigger political or cultural conversation that puts human beings at the center, right? Like this is something that a, another human being lived and walked. Um, but then we need to dig into the research and the commentary because that's going to show us that this isn't this isn't just one person's thing. Like this is this is probably systemic and requires systemic change, right? So so those two aspects of the form. Um, like hold each other's hands a, a little bit for me. But but just thinking like, again, when I'd sit in these classrooms with 18 and 19 year olds, like part of my job is to try to crack open the world for you, right? Like I I I, I can't make you walk through the door, but I'm, I'm going to open the door. And then you're, you're going to make choices about, about how you walk through. So why do I feel that responsibility to the 18 and 19 year old, but not the 40 or 50 year old, right? Why do all of us think, okay, we, we're going to be here to teach the kids, but then at what age does somebody age out of being educated or challenged or inspired. Mm -hmm. There's so much shit that I have to learn that I do not know. I I am like on a reading binge right now about Ukraine because I don't know I don't know the the history of, of how it arrived at this. I I mean I, I should know, but it is it has been a minute since I since I, I was deeply ingrained in Eastern European politics, right? Like, so j just like me trying to dig into the different aspects of this conversation feels important to me. And that's not something like my library card did not stop working once I got my degree, right? right? Like we, we keep showing up. It's just that our, now our education belongs to us and instead of our, our teachers. Well, what do we do if, because I think sometimes in middle-aged women feel like they they stop being as capable of being curious about the world. They, there, there does stop feeling like there's a lot new and a lot to wonder at. Like, what would you say to somebody who's struggling with that, struggling to get started again and to educate themselves again? Oh, I would say, welcome, hi, welcome home. We need you. Like, we're 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 trying to we're trying to remake the world here. Man, we get to tap out sometimes. I am I am tired. Like I, I want to take a nap. Like I, 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 I first started thinking about this. Like I, I was super postpartum after my my son was born, and and I was not able to stand up. I was not able to, and I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Like I wasn't able to to be on the front lines or part of the fight. Like my body was not in the street. My writing was not um, any kind of contribution to making the world better at, at, at that point. Like I, I was just trying to make it to the end of the day. Very similarly to the past two years for me during the pandemic on the road with my kid, I wrote every day. I only published one very small piece because I, I, I do, when I put the work into the world, I want to know why I'm doing so. I, I, I want to know, um, I, I, I want to be precise about it. Uh, so there are hundreds of thousands of words that I wrote, but there, like I said, there, there's a lot of darkness in there and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of grief. And I, I, I'm still thinking about what I want to communicate with all of, I want to be honest about it. Right. I, I think that this is another thing that, that I think a lot about like middle age stuff is, is so often we just put the work in the world. Like after I've learned the thing that I have to learn. And like, now that I'm healed, like, look at me, the bad bitch. I don't need no man. It, you know, Bonnie Raitt soundtrack. And so it matters to me that 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 we do talk about the the pain and the mess in the middle of, of that. Uh but that 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 can't be it. 
right? Like I, I no, well, you can't keep somebody, you can't suspend somebody there. You can't suspend yeah. somebody in the mess. I mean, that's the, the most classic, like the, the, the Vonnegut, uh, you know, storytelling arc, right? I mean, we all know this, like the man falls in the hole. We need to watch the man fall or the woman falls in the hole. We need to watch the woman come out of the hole. We can't, we, it, yeah. we, we can't accept that we just stay in the hole. right? Yeah. yeah. And you know what, like, like figuring out the meaning in our experiences is, a great complicated mess regardless of how long the narrative distance between when we lived it and when we wrote it right like a gen i know that like you're writing about things right now in this new book that happened a long time ago that you're still wrestling with and to think about that like in in contrast to like i, I just finished uh deborah levy's trilogy that oh. like, stuff right and here's the thing that's interesting to me but like the on the cover of that book it does not say memoir it does not say essays it says living autobiography and, you know, you and I remember seeing that and being like, what does she mean? Well, I'll tell you, Jesus gave us Google. We can look up what she meant. Right. <laughs> Put that word into Google. And the first thing you get is an interview where she talked about why she made the choice to use that. And I love what she said. She said, well, I'm writing from within the storm as opposed to after the storm is over. And oh, my God, just that that deeply simple language feels like it explains something I've been trying to articulate or not even articulate, just even understand for my entire life, right? Like just the difference of, hey, I'm in it right now versus it's over. But this brings me back to the, uh, is it the bridge or is life the the bridge? Like, I, I mean, is anything over? Dude, Carrie Fisher, did you know she's a novelist? She has a, a line in one of her novels, um, nothing's ever really over, it's just over there. Let's take a quick break from some ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. 
I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I remember when I was when I was selling this book and the book proposal, and um, and my agent was like, "You need, in, you know, you do all the chapters, synopses, and whatever." And my agent at the end was like, "You need a more satisfying ending." And I was like, "I'm still living the story. I don't yeah. know what the ending is." And she was like, "You cannot say that. That's going to pe- freak people the fuck out. <laughs> like, no. You cannot." tell people because they'll think that the editors who are potentially going to buy this will think that you don't know what you're doing, that you don't know how this is going to land. And so I I was like, well, then I'll come up with a completely contrived happy ending for this, which I did lots of dimples and grins. And it was not true and it's not going to be in the book. But the idea that because I didn't have a satisfying ending for this story meant I didn't know what I was doing is, is so indicative of everything and every way we think about women telling stories, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you have to have control over it and you have to, you know, and I don't, I don't think that's true, but wait, I have a question for you because so many people want to tell their stories and Mm -hmm. you work with a lot of memoir writers and a lot of people wanting to write memoirs. What is the thing that gets in their way from telling their stories? Oh, I, I, um, I think let, let's, we got to come back to fear. I mean, I, I think that there, there is just this constant fear of um, it won't matter to somebody else or I, well, I, th- I think let's, let's start there. And, you know, a thing that I always think about my, my favorite essay is um, it's called living like weasels by Annie Dillard. All that happens in that essay is Annie and a weasel look at each other for 30 seconds. <laughs> that is all that happens. And you read that, like, by the time you get to that essay, you're like, I need to change my whole fucking life. What am I doing? <laughs> what, I, like, I need to learn how to fly. Patricia Lockwood wrote, wrote about that essay in a different essay of hers. And she was like, it's that Andy Dillard essay where you finish it and you're you like, like you're watching an ant try to fuck God or something. Like, I, I mean, what makes our experiences matter is, is our, is us. Like it, like, like that, that that is, there's power there. And I wonder what would happen if, if women were able to recognize our own power. Like that is not permission that we've ever been given. So let's just take it. I'm exhausted. Like I'm so tired of having to fight for what is ours. Right. And the reason why I am, I am sitting where I'm sitting right now is because there are a bunch of women in this world who saw me. Right. Like I, I, just doing this weird fucking story on stage one time about uh, trying to heal from postpartum depression by stalking my neighbor with a wireless baby video monitor. (laughs) Roxanne Gay was in the audience. She saw me. 
She saw me and she saw the potential in that work. She published it on the rumpus. Six months later, I got an email from Cheryl Strait who picked it for Best American Essays. She saw me. Those two women, and those two women in particular have seen thousands of us, right? But I've had the opportunity to, to thank both of them or to try to, right? Like how, how, do you, how do you thank people who just change the trajectory, trajectory of your life? And both of them in, in their own ways said something to the effect of, great, okay, fine. Here's what you have to do. Like when you start walking through doors, you got to keep them open. Right. You got to turn around and say to everybody else, let's go, right? So all these writers who I work with, like that's me saying, I see you, let's go, let's do this. And what I need from you is you got to turn around and you got to say, okay, let's go. And we 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 bring each other along, right? Because just one of our stories isn't going to do it. It's not going to it's not going to make the change. We need all of them. We the the, the multiple different colors and shades and shapes and faiths and backgrounds and like all of it um, that, that build towards something being better. You know, Rebecca mm-hmm. Solnit had a, um, had an op-ed in the times uh, not long after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And she was talking about how like our systems around us were starting to collapse and, and many of them rightly so. But the question she wanted to ask is what are we going to build in their place? And I think that that's a place where language and literature and poetry really play a a vital part because that's us imagining what's possible. Um, And it's us looking at the way some of the things have been so we can see that it it needs to be something different, right? And we can pull fiction into this conversation as well, too. Like that's world building. Like how can we imagine what we can be? I think I just went off on a total tangent, Jen. Like, but no, but I, 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 no, I'm just struck by how hopeful you are. You are this. This is all so hopeful. I, I really sense that in you. Do you feel like a hopeful person? <sighs> when I um, when my second book first came out, it's called Once I Was Cool. It's an essay collection, and there were two reviews. Two reviews came out on one day, and one of them. Uh, like really just in a lovely way, like lifted up the book because of its hope. And the other one utterly trashed the book because of its hope. Hmm. And I, I think about that all the time, like how, um, like how hope is a, is a thing that, that can sometimes make us not see what's really there. I, I've, I've obviously been think, thinking about this a lot since, since, the end of my marriage, right? Like, like, what didn't I see? And what, what did I miss? And, and in, in hoping for this great love, um, what, what was I not paying attention to? And, um, but I also have to wake up every day with not only this child, but also these other artists who trust me with their stuff. I mean, like what, what is writing? We put our heart on a piece of paper and then we hand those pages to somebody else. That is such a profound act of trust. And for a, for all of these books, I am I am the first I'm the first person that they're that they're handed to, and that God damn, I better be hopeful for that. Like, I, how I mean, how on how on earth could I could I be worthy of of somebody's story? You know what I come back to all the time. Here's what I come back to. I I did this uh, book event. This was years ago in the Sanibel Island Literary Conference, and there was a a woman there. I, I told a story on stage. Uh, it was about abortion. And she came up after afterwards to to me at the wine and cheese party. You know the wine and cheese parties yeah. for the writers that they have the the 
the cheese cubes. Yeah, the cheese cubes and and the wor- and the worst one. And, yes. the, and the, tooth, the, the toothpicks and some of the cheese is yellow and some of the cheese is white <laughs> with little red pimentos in it. Okay. <laughs> so we're at the party and the woman, uh, she's in her 60s maybe, and she had one arm. And, uh, and she told me a story about abortion that she had never told. And she told me that she'd lost her arm in an accident and she thought that God had been punishing her. Mm. for the abortion and and I was like you, you've you've carried that long enough you, you've you've carried it long I I will I I will let me carry it let me carry it for you you it's 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 been too long I I, I got you and literally like it we we did like like a like a high school theater game right like I held out my hands to her and she like put her hands on her heart and then she put it into my hands and then I started crying and then she started crying and then we were the two women crying at the wine and cheese party which <laughs> is my brand like that is that is who I am um because you know if you 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 deal in in personal story like and a lot of what I deal in is is trauma right and um and just the sharing of it is is the strength and the hope of it right like being able to put it out of your body so you don't have to you don't have to carry it anymore. You don't have to carry it. Lydia Yuknovich talks all the time about um, how our bodies can't possibly carry everything the, that the world gives us to carry, but the page can carry it. They'll put it out of your body. You don't have to carry it anymore. You don't have to do anything with those pages if you don't want to. Or maybe you leave them alone for now and then you like later you you might... If you feel stronger, you you that something happens in the world that makes you want to put it into the world. Like, to, but for now, can, you don't have to carry this in in your body, and that's part of hope for me as well too. Like, there are there are spaces where where it, it doesn't have to be in here shoving us down, um, and so I think that that that's it a little bit for me. You know, when I when postpartum isn't living in my body anymore, so I can I can get up and I can get back on the front lines and I can put my body in the street. And so other people can tap out because they have to take care of their bodies or their families, or it's not safe for their bodies in the world in the way that it is for me and the various privileges that I hold in my skin or my mobility or, you know, and, and any of the, any of the ways that I'm able to walk through the world, all of us are going to need to tap out at different times. And there are other ones of us who are going to stand up and vice versa. We have to do this together. How, how do you, how do you write about people you love? Because you write a lot about the people in your life. Yeah. Um, how do you write about them without hurting them? I, uh, that is the million dollar question. Uh, and as a senior, I can ask that for you, Jim. Yeah. Like everybody listening to this right now, Melissa Feebos just published an essay about this like last week that I've been thinking a lot about. So get yourself to Google. And she also has just has a, had a book out called body work that I would really recommend as, as part of all, as part of all of this discussion. So I, um, for the most part, I, I, I talk to everybody that I write about. Like, um, I engage, I engage them in, in conversations. And, and with that, I need to acknowledge that I have always been in a place where it's safe for me to do so, right? Like some of the writers that I'm working with, like they're dealing with violence and custody and, legal implications and, and all sorts of, they're walking walks that I haven't had to walk. So I just want to acknowledge the, the privilege that I've had in this and just being able to sit down with a person that I write with and not have to be concerned for my own physical or emotional safety. So that, so first and foremost, you got to take care of yourself um, uh, and your, and your kids, some of you, like I, I see you, I, I, I see what you're up against. Um, when my last book came out, the Chicago reader did a feature 
where they, they asked 15 of the people that I'd written about to each write 500 words about what it was like to have been written about by me. Ah, <laughs> I read it. It's actually really nice. Okay. It, was, it, it was wild. It was, lo- I mean, lovely. They even, they even talked to my son who was nine at the time. And he was like, I don't like it when she stays up too late to write. Also, there is no wrong way to save your life. Also, <laughs> she can write about me because it makes me know she loves me. And I was like, holy shit, little human. That's so amazing. <laughs> that, that one really made me lose it. Um, all of that said, um, how do I write about what I'm going through right now? I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm up against this question, Kim, in a different way than I ever have been. And all, and, and just the, the, it feels kind of like the, the, the sword here is thoughtfulness. Like I, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to, I can't write revenge. Like I have a child, right? And I'm also, this comes back to like what we were talking about before, Jen, with like, do you write about it now or do you write about it years later? Like how I think about it changes all the time, right? Okay. I'm going to geek out for a second on this. Yeah. Please, please do. Geek out. The writers listening to this who have worked with me are like, okay, now she's going to go off on her shtick. Okay. But there's this literary tool that I always come back to narrative distance, right? And, And so it's like, where am I, where am I writing from? Like, is there 20 years between me and the moment? Is there two hours between me and the moment? Like, like how much distance do I have and how does that change the story? Right. So say when I was, um, okay, here's an example from a thing that I was working on right now. When I was 20 years old, I did a pregnancy test in a bathroom in Italy. And, uh, I've written about this before. Right. So I can write about that in the present tense from me at 20. And, and what that piece is about is, Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Like that, that's it. Like that, that's all that that piece is about. Now, if I write that same piece from the point of view of me at 22, when me and the, um, and the, the guy in question broke up for good, then that pregnancy test moment at 20 would be more about our relationship than it was about the pregnancy, right? If I write about that same piece from me at the age of 26, when that guy showed up on my doorstep on New Year's Eve after I hadn't seen him for four years, that would change the story of me in the pregnancy test at 20, right? If I write that same piece from the narrative distance of right now, when I ran into that same man in the woods after 20 years, having not seen him or talked to him, that changes the story of that pregnancy test, right? Any of our ex- our experiences are constantly changing. The meaning of them is constantly changing as we grow. And I think that, that that's a thing that that's a thing that we don't often give to to people writing about like personal experience is that they get to grow and change. There's a lot of people who just know me because of that postpartum essay. And they're surprised when they meet me that my son is 14 years old and that I'm fine and like that I make sense and that like, I'm not babbling on the floor. Right. Because art freezes time. Like Jen's going to put this memoir out and she's going to be frozen to the people who, who read the book. Right. And so, so just even thinking about writers who you love, there is the work and the work freezes time in that way. And we need to do that because we need to look at it, especially now in our world, everything's moving so fast, right? Like a news cycle knocks something out of the conversation like that. And books are the only place that I slow down anymore Mm -hmm. right just like sitting in someone's heart and in their head for however much they'll allow me right and trying to find myself in someone else's experiences and like that's where that human 
connection happens. You know, you all asked me earlier why I can be hopeful. And I, I'm still thinking about that in the back of my head. And I would like to say, just because I read a lot, I, I read yeah. a lot. And yeah. I, I mean, just that's, that's everything that I've been doing for 25 years. And you live inside of somebody's stories and God, you have to. Yeah. I, I have a question because I, I've also edited a lot of personal essays um, from, from women, women's personal essays. And sometimes the work is so raw and it's so personal and it's, you know, it's filled with trauma and you still, as the editor, have to edit and give feedback and you're careful and thoughtful with that feedback. But sometimes because the story was so hard to get out to begin with, it's hard for people to hear anything about it that seems negative at all. It feels so stabby. You're, it feels so hard. The criticism can feel so hard depending on how tender the memory is, you know? And I wonder how you've helped writers take criticism because we all need to be edited because, you know, a lot of times if we're not edited, it's a journal entry and that's different, right? It's just getting it out to be a journal entry is different than a lot of times the craftsmanship that you have to put into telling your other, telling your story. I mean, not everybody has to do this, but you know what I'm saying. And I found, I, I just wonder how you've taught people to take criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, okay, this is going to, this could be a whole nother, another podcast, but I, I, I want to like, I'm going to, I'm going to go over here to the right and then I'm going to bring this back around. Okay. So, so, so I trust I, you. I think that for, like, first we, we have to talk about critique and what that looks like in any space, but specifically a space where, where people are writing personal narrative, where, where people are, are writing about their lives. So what, what are structures and processes of critique and feedback that honor where the human being is in the particular process? Right. I, I would like to like if 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 you're listening to this and you're nodding your head like, yes, 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 we have to do that. Here is your uh, some reading materials for you. One, uh, the critical response process by Liz Lerman Two, the anti-racist writing workshop by Felicia Rose Chavez. Three, craft in the real world by Matthew Salasis all talk about this and different aspects of critique methodology that honors work that's in development. I think often by the time work shows up with an editor the decision has already been made that that work is going to be put into the world, right? So that's a different kind of critique process than, hey, I am making this thing and sort of trying to figure it out, right? So the thing that I would like to offer to writers is where are you in that development and how can you name where you are before you put that work into somebody else's hands? If you are ready to publish that work tomorrow and you hand that work to an editor, that is going to be a different kind of feedback that you are going to get because that editor is there just to be dealing with that language on the page. You step into a classroom or a writer's group, then that's you inviting other people into your practice. And who are those humans? And at what stage are you in this game, right? Like a thing that I think about all the time. Uh, okay, so if you look to the wall to your right, that's number one. Now look to the wall to your left, that's number 10. So imagine between those two walls, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. So number one, that's I write only for myself. Number 10, I write for the whole world. Now, what number are you standing on right now? What number are you standing on? If you're standing on a one with this piece, you're just writing that to get it out of your body. Don't put it into an editor's hands tomorrow because that editor is going to get it ready to publish tomorrow. And you're not going to be ready for that feedback because you're like, we're still trying to feel like you're starting to trying to figure this shit out. If you're at a five, like that's then what kind of publication do you want to submit to? Right. When I said before that in the past two years, I've only submitted to one place. 
I've, I just had one piece published. I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out everything that just happened to me. Right. And so the one place that I published, I didn't send that piece to my editor at the New York Times. I published that place in Cora, which is an excellent fucking experimental literary journal that's put out by a corporeal writing that's edited by Lee Hopkins. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant work, but really experimental in form and structure. And Lee gave me the support that I needed to, Kim, to figure out your question of, God, how do I write about people who are really in my life, who I'm having a hard time writing about right now, right? And and so the, like that that piece isn't as direct and clear and as as a lot of my other stuff, right? It's 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 is really different than anything else that I've done. And Lee was my person to do that with. But that's not me writing for the whole world. That's me writing for Lee and the the particular readership that Cora has, right? So so there are times that I'll say to writers like who are writing about very traumatic things and are really in their head about who's going to read this. I'll say, "Okay, I need you to ba- I, I need you to back up to number 1." I'd like right right now back up to number 1 or maybe like to, or maybe to a 2 and maybe the 2 is me and the other 9 people in our in our writers group right now, right? Like you get to control this continuum between I am just writing this to get it out of my body and I am writing it. So everyone everywhere is going to read it. Yes. Uh, Yes. And we can get so caught up in the publication, in the, in the end, the final result. And so like, and that we lose, that I have found young writers that I've worked with can sometimes lose themselves in the process because they're just like, the only way this is a success or has any meaning is if it's published for the world, right? Yeah. yeah. Not thinking, oh, there's so much success along this whole continuum that you're talking about. There's just getting it out and not, and not, and it being something that almost feels in the past more because you've given voice to it. There's that. There, there's so many things that are useful and cathartic along that process that don't have to be. We're so success oriented in this one way. And I in publishing your work. And it's um sometimes you shouldn't be publishing your work. <laughs> like, oh, or, or not yet. Or, right. Right. Like not yet. Um, yeah. And I want to bring, and Jen, you, you just said young writers. And I also want to, I want to crack that open too with like, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I still need it. Like, I, I mean, just the past couple of years, I have lived in a, in a way that I never thought I would have before. And so some of these questions of, I, I thought that I'd answered a lot of the questions that I'm up against right now. Right. But th- this comes back to how we, how we keep, we get to keep growing and learning and yes. changing. And that, that, God, that is a thing that, that we get permission to do. You get to do that. You get to keep falling off cliffs. Because if not, like, how are we living? Right. Yeah. yeah. You get to reset. You get to reset and hit the start button again. And when you hit that start button, a lot of times you have to relearn a lot of the things you thought you already knew, or you learn, right. need to learn it in a new context, right? Kim, yeah. you were going to say something. I'm sorry. Well, I just have a question because- <laughs> I, I need to know, do you, do you like writing? Because for a long time, I just assumed that no writer liked writing. <laughs> but, but recently I've met people who were like, no, actually, I really love light writing. It's when I'm happiness. So we're, we're happiest. <laughs> How, where are you on that spectrum? Yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely in the love spectrum, but I, <laughs> 
I don't even, I, I don't know if it's love as much as just breath, breath. Like it's, it's just, it's just part of it right now because it is very, I'm listeners. I'm pointing at my brain right now. Like it is very busy in here and it, um, and it, it can get, it, it can get kind of ugly. And, um, and I, I have just got to, I mean, even to be able to, to, to get through the day, like, like just to be able to, to think a complete thought. And also since I, what my days are is just sitting and reading everybody else's stories to be able to, to get my hands around my own feels really important and to figure out how I fit in the dialogue. Right. And sometimes where I fit in the dialogue is, Oh, I need to, to sit down and listen for a little bit, by which I mean, read. Right. Um, because I, I, I need to be learning from other people who have actually walked this walk. And and sometimes it means, oh, there is something in particular that I want to say about this. Right. Like, here, here's an example. <clears throat> There's some things that I that I need to say right now about uh, single motherhood. They're just in, in this country. Now, I could not say that two years ago at the beginning because I was trying to uh, make money so my kid and I could eat. And I was trying to maybe find us a place to live. So me writing thoughtfully about single motherhood and the, the, um, some of the policy changes that, that needed to be made into this country to, to support the people walking that walk. Like I, I, th- th- that wasn't a thing that I could process, but now a couple of years later, I have the jobs, I have the, the privileges of financial security in a way that I didn't before. And I'm able to sit a little bit in the research and see how so many women and kids are right now walking the walk that I watched two years ago, but, but they don't have my mother's basement in Michigan and they don't have my friend Dia's guest room in Oakland and they don't have the black mountain Institute giving them an apartment in Vegas, right? Like they don't have the, the support systems that were handed to me at the most difficult time in my entire life. Right. So what needs to change for that? Uh, so th- this is what I'm, what I meant when I was saying before about like, like I couldn't step up to the plate. Like I'm, I'm here now. I'm going to step up to the plate. I, this is a thing that I can talk about because I like, I walked it. And I have some things to say, right? So um, I, I, I think I just got lost in the question. Oh, it's whether or not I like writing. I, um, I, I, li- I like that. That feels like I, I am here on this earth. To, to um, I mean, what the hell are we doing on this earth? There has to be some purpose. But like philosophers have been trying to figure this out forever, right? So if there's something that I can say... Um, that matters to me. I still, to this day, get emails from women and the men and women who love them, who are in the thick of those first six months of a new child who I can't see through the fog. And they tell me about what that essay meant for them. So the, that is part of it. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know, Kim, if, if my phrasing would be, I love that, but that matters to me. Like that, that is a reason why I am going to get up in the morning, even when around us it is on fire. I, I think that the stories of how we get through matter because that that helps other people through. The actual practice of writing, like putting words in in front of the other, I do love that. I do love fighting with language. I love fighting with sentences. Mm-hmm. I love like like going back over and looking at all of the verbs and being like, I don't like that verb. <laughs> I'm going to go into the kitchen, get a glass of wine. I'm going to think about that verb for a minute. I'm going to think of 10 other verbs that I like. But before I can do that kind of nitpicky precision, um, I need to have written the thing. Yes. Because if I'm like, because I worry about the people who will like write two words and then 
go get the wine and think about the verb for 10 hours before they've written 30 pages and can go back and look at the verb. Like we got to figure out what we want to say, I think first. For those of you whose your your process is the other way, I see you. All power to you. I I don't understand you, but I don't need to understand you. So it's it's, it's well. There's it's nothing. To, if there's nothing to work with, there's nothing to finesse. It's like it has to. You yeah. can, and it's not the problem. Is and I've seen some. You know, I'm married to a writer. I know a lot of writers. I've seen people try to get that first draft out perfect. Well, you know, it can't. I can't tolerate it if it's so bad, and it just. It has to be bad often before it can be good. Every once in a while you get it. So you just, you have the thought, it comes out, you know, similar to how it is in your mind. And it's just, you can't believe it. It feels like magic. But for the most part, we're all clumsy in the beginning. We all Mm -hmm. say really passive verbs and are using the same adjectives over and over again. Mm -hmm. You get to fix that later. It's like... Yeah, yeah but living with the mess isn't easy for everybody. Living with that first draft spew is sometimes unbearable. Right. So then to that, I might say, like, um, is it possible for um, for you to get, because the writing process is more than building sentences, right? So what can you do to step away from it and to figure it out in other ways? Here's an example. I'm doing a show in a couple of weeks. Uh, this is a performance series I work with in Chicago called Second Story. I've been working with them for 20 years. And uh, so I've got this story coming up. And just before I got on this call with the two of you, I was on a Zoom call with my director in Chicago. And uh, and we had this whole discussion about the piece. And then we were like, okay, there, there's one particular transition that's not working. And the transition, like, f- y'all thought it's going to be, it's so hard. Like, I need to cover 20 years. And like, there's all this contextual information that I need to get in there. But I have to do it really quick because I only have 12 minutes in the piece. And so like, how, like, how do I nail it? And she, and again, this, this is the performance background that I come from, right? Like that same, like, look at the walls in your apartment shit that I was just doing with you. She was like, okay, that wall over there is the end of the previous sentence or the end of the previous paragraph. And this wall over here is the beginning of the next paragraph. I want you to just, I want you to walk me from one wall to the other, like physically get your ass up out of the chair. And I just like, I went and I stood against that wall and I said the last line of the first paragraph. And then I started talking my way to this paragraph. And I swear to God, like, sh- like just even that walk across the room did more than shit that I've done with my therapist in like a month. I was just like, oh my God. Like I, and this, like, this is an exercise that I make people do all the time. But just to have somebody else make you do it. So, I mean, honestly, to my editors and teachers, we make people do this all the time. We we can't always do it for ourselves. Like, I I, I was listening to a talk not long ago with the editor, Siri Botten, who I just adore. And, and she talked about um, how before she can step into her writer brain, her editor brain has to power down, right? And, and so she like actively thinks about powering and charging up these different ends of our brain. And so Kim, like back to this, God, it's painful to live in a, in a, in a first draft. Like I, what I might say is what is that pain? Is that pain because you are an editor and you're used to figuring out how things are supposed to be perfect? Is your pain because you're a teacher and you're used to like trying to figure out how to hold people when they're writing about different things? Is your pain because this experience is traumatic and maybe the backup that you need right now isn't with the writing. Maybe you need a therapist to hold your hand, right? Because sometimes we all need that as well too. So what what is the pain? Because it is deeply unique and deeply different for every single human being based on different parts in their 
parts. That's a shitty word. I wanted to edit that word. <laughs> Based on different experiences that that we're currently having. I mean, the pain that I'm dealing with right now in writing um, is real different than than it was three years ago. We get to, we get to change. Okay. How do you think about self-promotion since we're all in the world now and we need to become uh, marketers for our own brands? Whereas I would argue that 30, 40 years ago, you just got to put things out in the world and they would just go. And now you have to be like, ah, here I am on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I get for me, <laughs> for me, again, this is different for everybody. For me, it's useful to reframe that conversation just a little bit. Like when I start thinking about marketing and branding, I, I start to, I, I kind of, you know, fingers in the ears, la, 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 la. <laughs> but when I think about it in terms of um, sharing my work and contributing to, to, to conversations that are currently happening in, in, you know, culturally uh, that, that feels really important to me. And they're, they're kind of the same thing, right? Like, um, that, that feels easier for me. Like when, when I talk about, when I talk about publishing with writers, here are, here are three things that I lay out. And I, and I would like to preface this by saying, I kind of hate the idea of rules. I think if anybody ever says to you, here's a rule, then you should run away from that person as fast as you possibly can. Cause you know, as soon as we figure out a rule, then it can be broken by a million people. But, but here are th three things that I think about. Don't call them rules. Just whatever. Um, number one, lead with love. Like what, what publications and places do you read and actually enjoy? Like wh where do you actually want your work to live? Right? Like I, I want you to pull five favorite books off the shelf. I want you to look at the acknowledgement section. We all thank publications, editors, and agents in the acknowledgement section. The books that you love, the writers that you love, I want you to look at who they're thanking. I want you to go look those people up on the internet. I want you to go look up those publications. I want you to look at their guidelines. I want you to look at their mastheads right? Because they have a whole lot of very specific editors. I want you to go look at all those people on Twitter. I want you to look at what they're asking for. Thing number two, editors are human beings. I don't think that we think about that as such. I think that we think that editors are gatekeepers that are very far away and we don't have any access. No, they are human beings with children who are exhausted and maybe they're not getting a paycheck and maybe somebody in their family is sick and they have all sorts of things going on. So how do we deal with one another with grace, right? Um, also, all of those editors are all over the internet. They are on Twitter. Many of them have published, here's a whole medium essay on how to submit to me, right? These human beings are reaching their arms down out of their out of the clouds. We just got to reach back up. We got to meet them halfway, right? Um, this is how we listen to one another. Thing number three, Jesus gave you Google. Use it. <laughs> 10 seconds to Google Sari Botten pitch and see her medium essay. Matt Ortiel, pitch. Here's the whole Google Doc on what he wants. Lily Danzinger, pitch. You got the whole piece. She did it. She laid it out. It like the, this is literally just us doing the smallest thing as writers to be able to see what these other human beings are asking us for in what in in the publications that they represent, right? So it's useful for me to think here are all of these humans, um, and I want to talk to them. Just like I want to, I want to talk to the two of you. I want to talk to your listeners. That's, I, I'm not here. I am literally not here right now to sell my book. Right. But no. we can look at this, like this conversation can be looked at as a marketing tool. 
right. on, on my part. You talked about my book at the very beginning. Right. But I, I, the last reason that I thought of coming here was sales. I came here because I listened to this podcast. It has helped me so much. This is where I get stories of a lot of women my age that are different. So I can break up the narrative a little bit in my head. I want that as a listener. That's leading with love, right? Like I wanted to be on this because I love it. And I want to be a part of this conversation. So truly, when you're thinking in terms of putting yourself and your work out into the world, start with the places that you actually want to be. Start with the, the where are the conversations happening that feel exciting and important and right for you. Um, and how do we plug in there? Some of the best advice I ever got was don't write for publications, write for editors. Mm -hmm. Because we all fall so in love with the idea of seeing our byline in a particular font. But I, yeah, yeah but I want to take this even out of writing. I think leading with love on anything at this point in our careers, you know, if you can, if you are in a privileged enough position where you can really think, you know, do I love this company? Do I want my art adjacent here? Do I want to be, you know, however you can think, I think. Whatever you're doing, if you can think about it in that kind of organic way, rather than the muscling through the things we all despise, the, you know, the things that are just because of how they appear to the outside world when they don't feel good to you inside, all of those things, if we can lead in a more authentic way through our careers of what we individually want in these moments and what would actually light us up, not what it lights up the outside world, what we want. I think that that is good career advice across the board, what you just said. And I, I want to make sure I say that because not everybody listening is a, is a writer, but I think actually this is useful for everything. Good. Good. I hope so. Yeah. 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 You're amazing. <laughs> no, I'm in a bathroom. I'm in a bathroom. I know. I'm in a bathroom. Like, make sure that people know that right now. And I think, honestly, that um, I think that my pants are on backwards. So <laughs> when you listen to me and you're like, "Wow, that girl is caffeinated," um, just please know, like, we're not like there is this idea of what a writer is, and I don't know if any of us are that. Like, we're. <laughs> We're, we're just trying to get by. No, you don't want to see my 401k. <laughs> <You don't wanna. laughs> oh, no, no. Exactly. Exactly. Megan, where can people find you? Because I want them to find you. Yes. I Is, is this marketing right now? This is marketing. I'm, yeah. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. Um, and then both of those link back to my website if you want to, to peek at some of the work. Uh, and I teach um, in... Lots of wonderful places where I get to work with a lot of brilliant people. And uh, if you are one of those people, hi, we need you. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much. This thank has been you. just amazing. This was awesome. Good. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. Thank you so much for having me and for the work that you do with it, um, with these conversations. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. Every other week, we're reading out reviews, five-star reviews. Please leave them. If you want to find this show on Instagram, we are at, at EIF Podcast. We have a Patreon. If you want to support the production of the show, it's patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We're on Twitter. We have a private Facebook group that folks are seem to be enjoying. If you want to find Kim, you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. And you can find me at my newsletter occasionally, tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.